All right, good morning, guys. We had our kind of modified worship schedule because we'll be having a communion afterwards. But if uh, you wouldn't mind, let's flip over to Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> uh, last week, we started Acts chapter 17 and reviewed a bit of what uh, Paul and Silas did on the journey. Um, but for the most part, we just talked about the message and the gloriousness and the, the greatness of the gospel, uh, the fact of uh, forgiveness by grace through the blood of Jesus and what that means for us and how that brings peace into our lives and how we can just allow God to work and do great things. And it's, it's kind of a low-pressure situation, as it were. Uh, if you recall, we went through uh, their time there at Thessalonica, and uh, we made notes, but for the most part, it's a very similar uh, story. I don't want to say um, it's repetitive or something like that, but you see this template or this uh, uh, type of event unfolding over and over again. In other words, Paul and the gang, they show up, they preach the gospel, some people get saved, some people hate them for it, some people go on to walk with Jesus, some people stir up trouble, he has to leave, and then he goes somewhere else, and it's rinse and repeat. Uh, so, yeah, it pretty much is. Um, so as we go through the book of Acts, since we've kind of covered that cycle and talked about it at different times already, dealing with suffering, dealing with persecution, dealing with being hated, uh, we're not necessarily going to go over that cycle over and over again. I think that might get a little bit repetitive and we're covering. So we're going to kind of, as we go forward now, we'll be looking more at uh, the, the events and so forth, but how people work through them and respond to them and how we can take notes and consider these things so that we can walk in victory and have uh, similar responses in troubled times. As we jump into it this morning in Acts chapter 17 and verse 10, they are leaving Thessalonica and they're moving on, and that's where we pick up. It says here, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, <clears throat> excuse me, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed that not, excuse me, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. We'll stop there for a moment. This section and the remaining section of when Paul goes to Athens is just packed full of stuff. And honestly, we won't be able to cover it all. And I encourage you to read it on your own to kind of uh, pick out the pretty cool and amazing details that are in there. But in this case, first and foremost, we'll look at where Paul goes. He goes to Berea. And we probably, if, if you've been a Christian for more than like 15 minutes, somebody has talked to you about the noble Bereans before, right? Anybody remember from like Sunday school? Like the noble Bereans, it's the noble Bereans. Are you a noble Berean? You know, are you some punk Thessalonican or are you a noble Berean? You know, who, who are you? And, you know, this, this whole thing that kind of gets put out there. My heart this morning is definitely not to trash the Bereans by any means, but to explore what does it mean that the Bereans were more noble, that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Because if you were like me, I got saved when I was 16 and I didn't go to necessarily like the, the Sunday school that has felt and so forth. 
but still being taught and being trained and go forward, it was always kind of built that way for me. It was like, you don't want to be some punk, you want to be a Berean, and you want to be noble. And, and it was kind of built in this kind of way where it's like, they were the good people, like the good Jews, so they got saved, but the bad Jews, they didn't get saved. When really salvation isn't about standing in society, because the word noble has different meanings. It can be an actual class, you know, the noble class, people that have a certain standing in society, landowners, they were pretty much a, a notch below kings and queens and so forth, people of the court. They were the nobility. And so clearly the Bereans, we're not talking about Jewish nobility here, so that definition has to be out. The word noble can also refer to morality, that they're moral people, and that could be part of it. But it's actually part of two words. It's two, two pieces of Greek word that make up one. And the first word can be translated fair, good, noble, um, reasonable. And the second word is actually just a, a, a kind of a, a portion of a Greek word that emphasizes the first part. So it's like we might say extraordinary, right? Extraordinary. This is just a word that says like, yeah, really good or really fair, or something like that. There's an emphasis that they had this um, air or this quality to them. So the idea that's being communicated here to the, the Bereans is not that they were just good people, and so therefore they got saved. That'd be contradictory to the, the, the gospel. The gospel's for every single person. The idea was more that they were fair or open-minded. And you see that from their reaction because it says that when he spoke to the Bereans, they, they received the word with all eagerness. And it, the idea is every eagerness, as much eagerness as you could possess. And then after that, that, they searched the scriptures to see if these things be so. There's a few details about this, right? Because for, if you're like me, you relate everything in your world, in your venue, right? So you're like, oh, they must have gone home and read their Bibles and figured these things out. Remember, there's no Bible, there's no New Testament. There's no private collections of Old Testament, or very, very few of them. So this idea that the Bereans heard the scriptures and they ran home with their Bibles and explored it and figured it out, oh, well, that's not true. It's virtually impossible. Most scriptures, they were, they were all, well, they were scrolls, and they would be collected in the synagogue or other religious places. People didn't have private scrolls. The, the, the vast majority of people did not have a private scroll collection to go home and check in Isaiah or Joel or whatever it might be to go, oh, yeah, it says right here. Nor, you know, the, the hours that that would have taken to, to go, because the verses, remember, verses are added later, much later, for, for our benefit so that we could say, like, hey, let's turn to Acts chapter 17. When it's not like Luke, when he wrote this, he didn't write it out with chapter and verse. Those were added later for, for our benefit. But all that to be said is, the idea here is that they collectively would get together and they would discuss and they would read over and they would examine the scriptures to see if these things are so. So again, we're not trying to like bash the Bereans or go, oh, it's not a big deal. You don't want to be like the Bereans. But let's get an accurate assessment of what the Bereans were doing and how it helped them. Because in verse 12, it says there very clearly, many of them therefore believed. So something in the Bereans that was acted out or that was brought to flourishing ended in faith. Does that make sense? They did these things. They had this quality, this fair-mindedness, open-minded, a good mind, an honest mind, meaning being honest with themselves and these things. That mind, coupled with being able to explore the scriptures that they had, 
uh, perhaps copies of you know, the Old Testament, the, the Torah. Maybe they had extra stuff. We have no idea what was at that particular synagogue. They were able to look and to go through those things and in the end decided, yes, this is so. The therefore is based on the fact that they were willing to explore to see if it was true. Does that make sense? They were willing first to be open to it, then to explore it, and then to receive it. This is super important because our society is based upon and around an idea now that we don't communicate anymore. Maybe you've seen that, whether it's politics or COVID or whatever it is, but for the most part, people who are on two different portions or two different sides of an idea just kind of shout at one another and, and, and hoping that the other person changes, I guess. I'm not really sure. Half the time, I think we just shout at one another because we want our, known, our opinion to be known. We don't necessarily even care what the other person does. We just want to make sure that our opinion is out there. Maybe you've experienced, you've experienced this on a micro level, meaning you're in a conversation with someone and you're not even listening to them or they're not listening to you because they're waiting to say the next thing that they have to say. This cracks me up because I think we all do this. When especially married couples, but you know we get in these places and we, we have a point, and it's right. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it. I would not have this point if it wasn't right, clearly. So when I state it, it's clearly got to be right. So whatever comes out of your mouth doesn't really matter because my point is right. You ever been in a conversation like that? Ever felt that way towards someone or felt that they were that way towards you? Does it solve anything? Does it help anything? Does it develop anything? It never does, does it? So these Bereans, they were fair or open-minded. And they were, because of that, they were able to receive the gospel. Remember, they're Jews. It's a little different. For us as Gentiles, nobody had to come along and explain what the Messiah was or is, right? Nobody had to say, well, okay, remember the seven mandatory, uh, or the, the seven sacrifices, and I think what, three of them are mandatory, four of them are offertory, and you have to do this, and this is how they work, and this is why they represent Jesus, and then you have the seven feasts, and the Feast of Booze, and the Feast of Passover, and this is how they represent Jesus, and he fulfills them. We were just like, uh, what? That came along way later when we were on YouTube one time. For us, someone just came along and was like, this is the gospel. You are hopelessly destroyed in your sin eternally. And when we were honest, we go, yep, that's true. I don't like it, but it's true. And then someone explained to us that Jesus Christ paid for our sin. And it wasn't just the words that that came to us, but the Holy Spirit bore witness to us. And probably, honestly, a lifetime of witness up to that point. Because to be honest, the gospel in itself is a little bit of a silly story. The idea that a Jewish carpenter was God and came and then died and now you can be forgiven on the outside seems a little bit ridiculous. But then with the reality of the Spirit witnessing to your heart and speaking to you, all of a sudden you can go, hey, I can get down with that. In fact, I believe that to be true. And I'm going to receive that. And then we had an option and we said, okay, I receive that or I don't receive that. And then, and then that bears out fruit in our lives. So for you and I, in a salvation perspective, we didn't necessarily need someone to come and argue with us. For us, you know, like for example, um, apologetics. Apologetics can be very interesting. And for for some of us, apologetics might have played in like, hey, that's pretty crazy that the flood was about 4,000 plus years ago and the barrier reef grows one inch a year. And it's about 4,000 plus years ago old. 
you know, there's all these things that, that the age of when the flood was and that, that kind of apologetic stars and all that kind of thing, that, that can be very exciting. But most likely, if you were like me, for many of us, there are some, but for many of us, it wasn't an intellectual extent. You weren't like, well, I'll get saved, but I need to know how old the earth is. And if we can't perfectly evaluate that, I'm really not into salvation. Right? You were just like, I'm done for, I'm broken, I'm hurting. Somebody gave me the gospel, you spoke to me, and there it is. I receive it. But for many of us, then we have a Christian growth. Then we need to grow in the Lord. And for, for really churches and individuals and people to continue to grow in the Lord, just like they went from Jews to being Christians. They worshiped Jehovah righteously in his way of sacrifice, animal sacrifice. Somebody came along, in this case it's Paul, and he communicated to them the gospel and how the Messiah came and he was the ultimate sacrifice and he was the completion of the law and they believed in it. They were open to this idea and it bore fruit into their lives because they received the gospel. So also us, we're Christians. If you're a Christian today, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your, uh, as for the forgiveness of your sins, we also need to grow. It's a little different. They transition from one testament to another. We're not necessarily doing that right? But we still need to grow in our faith. And a big part of that is for us to be open-minded and to be diligent. Now, here's the thing. You know how things that happen in your past kind of define things for you, how you establish them or you think about them? So when I say open-minded, maybe for me and for some of you, that's a scary thing, right? Because you're like, whoa, whoa, open-minded. Like, that's like liberal scholarship stuff right there. Like, I don't know if I can get down with that. And we can be, it can be scary, right? So when I was about 22 years old, I was working at Landis Automotive. It was a Honda store. I worked there for about nine years. And I worked in the shop. Uh, and I just happened to be in the office one time. And, and, I, and the phone was ringing. Everybody was busy. So I picked it up and I answered. And I, I said, you know, hello, it's James, Landis Automotive, or whatever we were supposed to say. Uh, I was a little bit different back then. I actually got banned from answering the phone. But anyway, the... <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny story. I'll tell you after church. But the, uh, uh, you know, hey, this is Landis Automotive. You know, how can I help you or whatever it was? And this, this woman on the other line says, you know, it's from, from uh, she uh, kind of had this real southern accent. And she, you know, are you open-minded? And I'm like, I, I don't know. How do I know that? What, what are the criteria we're talking about here? And then she, I'm not kidding. She goes, would you be interested in adult films? And I'm like, I'm not open-minded. I'm not. <laughs> Please don't ever call here again, you know, and I hang up. So that, honestly, for me, as weird as it is, that was such a bizarre event in my life that that's literally where my mind goes. Anytime, are you open-minded? <laughs> I am not open-minded. <laughs> not even a little bit. I don't know what you're peddling, right? But this is, so for some of us, like, the idea of being open-minded, we can get concerned, like, well, what are you saying? Like, am I going to adopt false doctrine? Am I going to... No, that's not what we're saying. We're not talking about liberal scholarship of the Bible. We're not talking about adopting false doctrine. We're talking about communicating. And it's really important if we're going to grow in our faith. In their case, they got saved. They believed. But we need to be able to, to communicate with others for our sake and for their sake when we're talking about our faith. And what I mean is sometimes somebody can come along and they say, I have this idea. I'll give you one. This is, a, this is just a theory, and I didn't come up with it, but it's just something I've been thinking about that I would never teach as fact from the pulpit. But I think that there's a possibility, and you can throw this away because it's just a, something I've been thinking about, 
that people's names actually start in the book of life and then they're removed. And there's some quotes from the Psalms and there's things like that. It's just, it's just an idea and I could be totally wrong and I'm fine with being wrong. So if, if I came to you and I'm, you, you, know, you come over to my house, we're having dinner and I'm like, yeah, I'm having this crazy idea. I'm thinking from some of the verses in the Psalms, David says, don't take my name out of your book and different things like that, that maybe everyone's actually on their way, but when they reject Christ, their name is removed. And, and so you have an option there. You can be like, you're a flaming moron. And that'll probably end our time together, right? It'll be, it'll be tough to communicate at that point. Just like when someone rejects something you think out of hand or you're considering, how do you feel? Do you, do you continue in dialogue? Do you continue to open up? Do you continue to converse or do you retract? See, people can have us, we, what say, we people alone, we can have really weird ideas. You ever notice that? We can have really weird ideas. And it's really helpful when we vocalize those weird ideas because then people that love us can come along and say, well, that's interesting, but that's a weird idea. And here's why. Have you considered this? Have you considered this? And when two people can dialogue because there's trust and there's love, all of a sudden we help one another, right? And we grow. If I share a weird idea like, hey, I think maybe everybody's name starts in the book of life and then gets removed, which I have no idea if that's true or not, so don't, you know, Say, James said this morning, I'm just, it's something I've been thinking about for years and I have no conclusion on. You can go, that's really weird, James. And this is why. And I can go, okay, cool. I'll never say that again. Right? It's really important that we have good, noble minds and that we're able in a collective to talk about things. And then in that collective to consult the scriptures together and therefore believe. It's really important. And in a society that absolutely squashes critical thinking, isn't it weird how in society we've moved from critical thinking being a way to dialogue to being an offense? And, and, and this is what I mean. Like you submit an idea and someone goes, I don't know about that. And you're like, are you really my friend? And you're like, I don't know how friendship has to do with disagreement. Agreement. And, but that's where we've come as a society. Maybe you felt that in your own heart because it's crazy how society creeps into where we're at and how we think. When in reality, the Proverbs tell us that the smitings of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. To be able to hear someone who loves you say, that's a weird idea. You probably shouldn't spray paint Jesus' name on people's garage doors. That's a weird idea. I don't think we actually have to work for our salvation. That's a weird idea. I don't think you have to speak in tongues to be saved. That's a weird idea. I don't think you have to have the King James Bible to really be saved. That's a weird idea. I don't think you have to be a new earther to be saved. That's a weird idea. I don't think the earth is really flat. That's a weird idea, right? Just to come along and say, that's a weird idea. Jesus told me I should, you know, whatever, sell everything and sit in the street and give it all, give it all away. Well, okay, it's feasible, but what are you going to do after that? Seems like a weird idea because... When you look at, like, for example, the baptism of John, and he talks about what repentance is, he doesn't say that. Jesus said it to one person, a rich young ruler. That's the only time we read of Jesus telling somebody to do that. He didn't make a nap. That's a weird idea. So for, we, for having people around us that are loving and willing to go, that's a weird idea. That's a blessing. 
And having an attitude, being a, a noble Berean and saying, I can accept that you say that's a weird idea. And let's explore this together. It will only work for good. Because when you're getting into the scriptures and you're considering it, you're, you're following the Holy Spirit with trusted people. I'm not saying, oh, that's a weird idea. Now I'm going to get some fringe book and find out if it's true or not. That's a bad plan. But brethren, like-minded brother that you're walking with and in fellowship with, this is because they have this open mind, a fair mind, a good mind, an honest mind, a noble mind, because they searched the scriptures together, they believed. And so I just want to encourage us as, as human beings, as people, this is a very important thing. And it ends up to this to faith and, and this, you know, this great thing happening and, and just a, uh, a tremendous building of the kingdom of God. So let's be noble Bereans. Let's be noble Bereans in, in, the, in the, the right way. Not that we think ourselves like, well, I'm noble because I got saved. But the idea that, hey, I can have an open mind and I can, I can hear what the Bible has to say and what my brethren are trying to help me with. And I can go with that. I'm not going to rage or reject that. And we'll move on. So in verse 15, it says, that Those who conducted Paul, so the idea is that they escorted him. They brought him as far as Athens. So Paul shows up in Athens. There's just no way we can cover everything that's happening here in Athens. Uh, and I'm not skilled enough to be able to <laughs> divide it up appropriately. So we're going to just mention a few things and talk about it. And then we're going to move on. But with Paul, because the, the cool thing about Paul is this is kind of one of a sample sermon. He quotes poets from their time. He quotes poets from where he's from. He quotes, he, he talks about uh, a, an altar they have to the unknown God. He begins to relate to them. And we'll look at it a little bit because it's important. Paul does not show up in Athens and just rage. He doesn't show up in Athens and protest the, you know, the, the Areopagus. He doesn't show up in Athens and protest worship you know, to certain deities. And again, I'm not trying to harp on protesting. He just shows up there. He observes what's happening, and then he's able to speak to them on those accounts. He's able to meet them where they're at. So on the one hand, we have this idea of the Bereans, and now we have this sample of how Paul is preaching the gospel. But it's not to say that he had some sort of weak gospel or he didn't call for repentance. In the end, he absolutely calls for repentance. And he says, you have to repent. God is calling you to repent. But the way he gets there is by discussing the things that they're going through and the things that they believe. So this is really important. Again, I am not at the end of this, and I'm not trying to go to, we all need to be geniuses like Paul and be able to know everything about the society and the culture to be able to preach the gospel. That's not where I'm going with that. So don't, it's not like this thing where, oh, we better study up and you better know all the cultural ideals. No, that's not it at all. The point is just to expand a little bit on the Berean in a, in a separate way in the second portion, and that is to be, excuse me, that is to be aware of what people believe to an extent why they believe it, and then be able to talk to them through it. The, the, I don't know if you've experienced this, but um, in our society, there seems to be a shift. And here's the thing. I want to say out loud, um, I am not dictating how anybody should outreach. Okay? I'm not doing that. Uh, you know, I went two-by-two two witnessing almost every Thursday night for like 11 years. I went door-to-door -door witnessing almost every single Sunday for 11 years. We were on an open-air preaching team. I went to a church that was very, very active in the community in that sense. And when I started that church, it was about 86 people. And when we left that church, it was about 68 people. So I wanna, I'm not trying to say how we shouldn't do it because I don't know. I'm just trying to say what I've seen work. Does that make sense? 
So if, if you're a two-by-two two witnesser and God's given that to you, I say, God bless you in that. Go do it. But from what I've seen, work as, as a whole has not been that. Did it get the gospel out? Yeah, probably. But how can we effectually get the gospel out to our community, especially right now when we live in this really weird kind of viral time and all that kind of stuff? How can we express love to them? Well, this is what Paul does. So Paul goes to Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign uh, divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And now the Athenians, excuse me, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sounds like Facebook. Basically, Paul goes to Athens and he goes to the Areopagus, and literally just means Mount of Ares. So next to uh, the Acropolis, if you've ever seen like pictures or illustrations or some of the ruins of the Athenian uh, Acropolis, it was this incredible, incredible Greek structure. And I've, I can't remember, I think it's to the west of it, there's kind of this lower hill, and it was considered the, the, mount, the, the hill or the mountain of Ares, a different god. And so what happens is Paul is dialoguing in Athens with people, and they bring him to this hill. Now, at that point, the Areopagus was not just an area, but they were kind of like a board. They were a, uh, a group of people. And at that time, at Paul's time, they had been reduced from kind of a ruling class to essentially they were in charge of, uh, for, for Greece, they were in charge of religion uh, and education and kind of what's okay and what's not and that kind of thing. So they bring them before the Areopagus, most likely standing up on that hill. It could have been that they met in like an outbuilding, but... Um, and he begins to dialogue with them. That's what's happening here. And this is how he dialogues with them. And it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. Now, this word religious, it's, it's a different word than other places. It's like this long in the Greek. And it basically means, it's, it essentially means that you're very reverent or fearful of deities. And, and the implication, to some extent, is of demonic deities. He says, I see that you're very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man... Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, the boundaries, and their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. That's a quote from a poet. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Obviously, that's a quote from a poet. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine uh, being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and excuse me, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance of God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, Dionysius and an Aeropagite, so he was part of that board, as it were, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So you can see he comes and when he approaches them, he's addressing where they're at. He's talking to them where they're at. Notice he doesn't just roll up and say, you disgusting adulterers and your stinky idols and your false gods and all your garbage. God's going to judge you and he hates you. He doesn't do that. He says, oh, you know, I see you guys have a fervency for deities, that you have a fear of offending your gods. I see that you even have an altar to the unknown God in case you forgot one. And you sacrifice to this God who may be out there and might affect your lives, and you don't know who he is. Well, actually, that's the God I want to talk to you about. And this is who he is. And in each one of these, and you could go through these, because each one of these things, these, these points that he's making, they actually address some of the, the Greek mythology and some of the Greek uh, culture of the day. See, a real balance is that we're not of the culture. We're not supposed to be of the culture. We're not supposed to be experts in the culture. Paul told us that, hey, we should be, we should be innocent and evil. It's not like we need to dig up every terrible thing about the culture and figure out all the weirdness and all that. We're not saying that. But it's okay and it's important to be able to see what's going on on an individual level and be able to talk through those things rather than just rage. See, again, I'm not poo-pooing open-air preaching or anything like that. We did an open-air preaching team for about seven years at a farmer's market that sometimes in the summer would garner about 10,000 people, and it was open all year round. And, and you, when we first started it, and well, when I first joined it, I should say, I wasn't one of the founding guys, but when I first joined it, you could go out and open-air preach, just stand on a corner, and you could get, you could get a, 100 people. It'd be a hundred people that would just kind of form the semicircle and listen to you talk about the gospel. And then afterwards, there might be 10, 15 people that might stick around and, and you could have a conversation with and maybe pray with them or something like that. About seven years after later, when we finally shut it down, you could not get one. Not one person would stop. All you got was mocked, which is fine. I mean, that's no big deal. You get mocked. I think somebody threw a hug cap at me once. I mean, just, you know, whatever. It's just, it is what it is. But it, it was ineffective. It was shouting into the wind. And to an extent, it was because Christians and Christianity has looked at a certain way. So if you're not able or willing to dialogue with people, they're just going to assume things about you. We live in a really weird era now. When you talk about Jesus or you talk about God, it, for a lot of people, it immediately goes to what the church is against. I've kind of said in the past, you know, I like to play Xbox and you can do little parties and stuff like that. And I remember one time there's a bunch of British dudes that I play with and uh, 
Uh, and so, because they're like nine hours ahead, so sometimes I'll play early in the morning because I'm an early riser, so I end up talking to them. And one of the guys knows me, and another guy joined our little Xbox party. Internet boats is very serious. So we're, you know, shooting internet boats at each other. And, he, and one of the guys would say, what do you do? And I said, well, can we still be friends after I tell you? He says, yeah, sure. I said, I pastor a church. And he immediately goes, I don't want to hear any of your anti-gay stuff. And I go, I don't have anything anti-gay to say. Jesus loves every single person. But see, just based on whatever this guy's gone through in his life or hurt or whatever, his estimation is that's who we are. If you're a Christian, you hate gay people. If you're a Christian, you do this or you do that. So for us, instead to be not part of the culture, but to understand the culture, to listen to people in their pleas and then be able to address those things biblically, it's very important. Because our job, we're there to win people to Christ, show them who Christ is, not to rage against them. It's interesting, too, this, in verse 16, Paul says, says, you know, moving back a little bit, Paul says, while he was waiting for them in Athens, waiting, that is, for Timothy and Silas to join him, his spirit was provoked in him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, the words, two things about this. The word spirit, it's almost always pneuma, right? We use a lot of allegory and metaphor and even hyperbole to talk about our feeling, what we feel on the inside. I'm not reducing this to just feelings, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, we say things that, uh, you know, when we have, we say, I have, a, I have a gut feeling about this. My gut says this. When you say that, you're not literally saying, well, my stomach has spoken in my mind, and this is what it has told me. All right? You're saying, on my innermost core, I feel like something is true, right? My gut tells me. When we say uh, something like, when we feel light, it's not like you say, well, I dropped a few pounds this week, and I just feel like I could float away. no. If we say we're feeling light and, and like everything, what we're saying is my mental state feels free and I don't feel oppressed. So we use a lot of metaphor to describe what's happening to us, right? In this case, it says that his spirit, because you ever wonder, like, what is my spirit? I have a soul, right? My soul, biblically, is who I am. It's the, the seat of emotion. My heart is kind of the center of my soul as a seat of emotion. And we read in the Bible that my soul is saved... And my soul is being saved, right? For in First Peter one, he talks about receiving the end of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. That there's an end game, is that I am being changed on the inside, and that one day I will be completely changed. Then, in that complete change, I will shed my mortal body, and I will have a new body. So I have a body. And I have a soul that somehow, I don't even know where my soul is. We're told in Ephesians that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places in eternity. But I actually am standing right here in time. So maybe my soul is seated and my body's, I don't know. Some of it's kind of weird. But you go, okay, I have a soul. We say, my soul is in my heart. You know what? Uh, there's nothing in your heart but blood and oxygen, nerves. That's it. That's what's in your heart. Jesus is not in there, right? This is all metaphor, but we use this idea, when we say my heart or my soul, wherever that actually is, we don't know. Uh, I've seen the inside of some bodies. I've never seen a soul in there, even while they're alive. You know, there's no, like, mystical soul. They actually did a test. There was literal studies in the 1800s where they weighed dying people on scales, and the moment that their heart stopped, they tried to see if they weighed less because their soul left them, right? So 
This is, these are metaphorical ideas. So my soul somehow is attached to and operates through this temporal body, through a brain. But now I have a spirit. So I was told I'm spiritually dead until I found Christ, until I should say he found me. And I, when I received him and I said, yes, you can, I want you to come into my life and forgive my sins, then I became spiritually alive, which means I was now connected to God to experience his life. So when Paul said, when it says here his spirit was stirred or was provoked within him, it's not that all of a sudden some weird thing happened. It's just communicating that his pneuma, his wind, is all it means, where we get our word pneumatic, that something was pushing, there was a pressure, there was a, a change that occurred in him. Just like we would say, my heart's telling me, or I feel this, that's what happened. His spirit was provoked. His pneuma, the direction he's going, the, the air about him, right? We use that term too, the air about that person. So what's happened is he is now moved in his core, because these people are in idolatry. So there's a few questions to ask here, I think, because of that. Number one, we have already discussed what happened, but in a sense, why did it happen? Well, he says that he observed that they were in idolatry. So idolatry is the idea that you're serving something, right? That you have this idol set up. It's something of great import to you. In fact, remember, he commented to them, and he said, I observe that you guys are fearful or that you're, re you're very religious people. This is very important to you. And so because he observes that, he sees you're serving false idols. Here's the thing about false idols, something that every single false idol has in common. It doesn't mean, matter if it's Moloch Baal or Baal from the old school gods, from the you know, Fertile Crescent and uh, Nimrod and that whole gig or if it's all the way to the new gods of money and sex that we have today that we bow down to. And it doesn't matter if it's Zeus or Hermes or everybody in between, Athena and them all, they all demand one thing, and it's your life. They demand your faithfulness and your life, every single idol. If you're, I watched a show one time. It was very interesting. It was about a half hour long. It was people. It was nine people that made minimum wage on one panel, and it was nine people that were millionaires on another panel. And all the millionaires had made themselves millionaires. They had started businesses. They started with nothing. They didn't come from old money. And one of the things that the, all the people in minimum wage jobs, I'm not minimizing any commentary on money, is he said, they said things like social and family. They said those things are all very important to me. Not that they can't be if you don't have a minimum. Please don't read anything into this. In minimum wage job. They said, they said, these things are way more important to us. And all, every single millionaire on that panel that made it themselves, they all said the same thing. They said, I had no life for 10 years. I just worked, I made money, and I invested that money. I made money, and I invested it. One guy was like, I started seven different businesses until one finally succeeded. And for the last 15 years, I haven't gone out to dinner. I haven't done, you know, I haven't gone to uh, uh, social gatherings. I don't have many friends. You know, I don't. So there were sacrifices that were made in order for them to have those millions of dollars to make that money. It didn't come through the lottery or from old money. It cost them everything. It cost them everything. Every idol demands everything. And that's what the, you know, you have uh, um, Moloch that demanded your firstborn be burnt on, a, on an altar. You had Athena that demanded basically child molestation as, as 
a sacrifice along with some meat. They all demand the destruction and everything that you have. And Paul sees that. And he sees the, the futility of what people are going through. And we can see that sometimes in our lives and in others, right? The raw futility and the destruction. People that, like us, they end up serving substances or they end up serving a cause. They end up, you know, they just, they're laying down their lives and you see it just destroying them. And so what happens is it says that his spirit was stirred inside him. The other side of the why is, is, is how did it stir? You know, for uh, a big part of my own personal testimony, how I really <laughs> began to figure out, I'm really messed up inside. Uh, when I was about 12 years old, I think I've shared this before, but when I was about 12 years old, we were my family, uh, I don't know where my sister was. She was 17 at that time, so she was off doing whatever. But we, what, what our family, probably not the best practice, uh, but we grew up watching TV. And so we... Not that I'm saying TV is bad. We're, I'm going to a Super Bowl party after this, so hey, it is what it is. But, you know, every night we would have TV trays and we would watch TV while we ate dinner. That's just what our family did. And uh, I remember, you know, my dad, he's, he would always kind of read the paper typically. He'd have his dinner. He'd have the paper up and the news would be playing. My mom would be sitting on the couch. She had her little deal there and with the dinner and, and she'd be watching the news. And then I'd be in some chair with, with my little TV tray wishing we weren't watching the news. And so when I was about 12 years old, I remember there was this, uh, um, an aircraft that, that crashed into the side of a mountain in China. And I remember just kind of watching it, and you know, they always have the pictures, and the smoke is rising, and they have the, the mourning families, and the, the whole news story. I'm not ma making little of it. And I remember watching it, and I remember my mom beginning to kind of, kind of weep, tear up, and tears were showing down on her face, and and she's just, you know, it was tore up at all this loss of life. It was like 200 some odd people died. It took off and slammed right into the side of a mountain. And I remember my dad, you know, lowering his paper and kind of checking it out and whatever. And I just remember thinking to myself, and maybe this was divine revelation, or maybe it was just bizarre philosophical thought process. But I really, I remember being like outside myself and thinking, I don't care. Just thinking to myself, this means nothing to me. And watching the morning people and just thinking to myself, I know that this should affect me. I should care about this. But I don't. It meant nothing to me. And that scared me. That I literally had no care for this human life. And it kind of began on this, this trek in my own life to go, why am I so messed up inside? Why don't I care about these people? Why don't I, why doesn't this mean something to me? It should mean something to me. And throughout, you know, I ended up getting saved four years later. And, and throughout my Christian life, God has developed a, uh, a different heart in me and so forth. I'm very thankful for that. But the point is this. If we don't care about our society around us, if we're able to sit in our chairs with our TV trays, knowing that every single person around us that doesn't know Jesus, and unfortunately some that are, that do know Christ, are serving idols and is killing them. If our heart is not moved, if we're able to sit with our TV trays and say, I don't really care about that, we need to ask ourselves why. Why do we not care? And this isn't a message of condemnation or trashing anybody, because you can't change how you feel, can you? Has anybody here ever successfully changed their emotions that didn't concern like calming down, you know, and then eventually kind of working through it? You don't just go, I am now not mad. I now care. 
I'm caring. Here it is, right? We don't do that. You can't do that. If you don't care, you don't care. It's who you are. You can start to, like, intellectually care. You can say to yourself, it's not good, I don't care. So I will now do actions to help this person, even though I don't deeply feel they're hurting, I will move in a direction that will help them because intellectually I know that it's bad, is what's, what's happening to them is bad, right? Everybody, anybody, am I the only one that does that, the sociopath? All right, so that's, we can do that. But his spirit was provoked. And so I just have just a couple of ideas about this. Number one is, sometimes I don't think we fully understand the destructiveness of sin, and so we don't, we don't care when we see it. Now, I am not talking about being offended at sin. Being offended at sin really has no, I mean, okay, cool, you're offended. But being offended at sin in the sense of like, oh, oh, that hasn't helped anyone. Being offended at sin as God is offended at sin, because God hates sin, right? He's offended, the Bible says that it's offensive to him, but the idea is God hates sin because it destroys people. That's why he hates sin. Because it destroys the people. He doesn't hate the people that do it. He hates the sin that destroys them. So it's perfectly fine for us to hate sin and have that kind of offense and go, this is so terrible because of what it's doing to you and to your family and to your kids and to your school. This is terrible. That's fine. But this kind of like, you know, Queen Elizabeth, like, you know, that's just not, it's not, you know, useful. But I don't think sometimes that we understand how destructive sin is. One of the, uh, and <clears throat> we'll keep this PG-13, one of the things that I really enjoyed that I used to do, I uh, got the privilege of doing, is I used to go to a rehab and do a group meeting. And it was, it was a cool deal because at the rehab, the people got an option. They could go to another AA meeting or they could come to this Bible study. And, and so this, the Bible study was discussionary, and we would talk and different things like that. And one of the cool things about rehab Bible studies is that people that realize that they're broken are way less likely to try to pretend that they're not. Does that make sense? They don't, they don't put fronts up. You know, they don't, they don't do that. And so a lot of those people, uh, I, shouldn't, I don't mean those people, us people, when we get to that point, it, it, we're much more open for discussion and to talk about things. And one of the things that we talked about a lot is like, why is sin so bad? Kind of that generic, like, why is, like, there's some sins like, well, you know, murder is bad. Molesting is bad. Like, we're, we're good with that. But like the number one thing that I don't know how many times in the course of two years that we talked about was sex. And the question is always, why is it so bad? Kind of viewing it as like kind of like a recreational activity or something like that. Like, why is this, I don't understand why this is bad. It seems like this is okay. Or why is porn bad? I answer that question a lot. Why is pornography bad? I don't really understand. And one of the things that we talked about, and this is just to illustrate in a, in a sin that really in our culture, it's, it's not, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's on like every sitcom every night. This, it's like, this fornication is a complete norm in our society. In fact, you're like a freak. If you are like, uh, yeah, I, I want to do it God's way. I'm going to wait till I'm married. So why does God say that sex is bad? Was he, did he like create erogenous zones and then like say, but you can't use those. That's terrible. What did he do? Who is he? Why is he like this? And when you stop and you start breaking it down, we're really weird people sometimes. And many of us have a radical amount of insecurities, Right? 
And the thing about, just practically looking at it, when we are promiscuous, we develop a lot of, we can develop tons of insecurities. We can start thinking, am I the best lover this person has ever had? Do I satisfy them? Is my body attractive? Is this the best body they've ever seen? And there's a ton of inner securities, and this is just a mild, there's a lot of weirdness that can come along with having sex with multiple partners. And then in that group setting, you can ask a question, have you ever felt that way? And I'll tell you what, in every group setting I ever went to where this conversation came up and we ended up hashing it out, and the end result, every single person, we're talking some of these Bible studies, 20, 25 people, every single one of them says, I felt that way before. I felt nervous going into it because I thought I wasn't good enough sexually for this person or I wouldn't be attractive enough or I wouldn't be this enough or I wouldn't be that enough. And, the, and so what was God created to be something beautiful and to be shared and explored, all of a sudden it becomes this terrible, nervous, weird thing. And so you can put it forward. Well, if you had only had sex with the person that you married and you only knew their body, would you ever even consider being missed out on it? Well, no, I wouldn't. Because I've only been with that one person. And I, and, I, and I wouldn't have to explore that. I wouldn't have to wonder about those things and all this, you know, all these different things. So there is a thing where God comes along and says, hey, this is a bad idea. And it's a bad idea because it can destroy your relationship. It can create weirdness. It can make you feel terrible about yourself. It can do all these different things. And God says, so here's a plan. Just don't do that. And we're like, no, that's stupid. Because it'll be so much better if I do this. And God says, I designed you a certain way, and you should do this. So when, when, when we look at sin, and to fill in the blank of what it might be, besides the big bad ones, sometimes we don't necessarily feel for other people when they're going through it, because we're like, ah, what's the big deal? What does it really, I mean, what's it really matter? What's a little porn on the side? What is, I mean, come on. But when you start breaking it down, you go, oh, man. So sometimes we don't necessarily feel our spirit doesn't move inside of us because we don't really necessarily understand how destructive things are. Sometimes we, our spirit isn't provoked because we just don't love people. And again, this isn't to be condemning. I mean, I, there's no condemnation in Christ. We're just discussing how we can be effective in our ministry. Sometimes we just don't love people. And really, to begin to, to love people, that's a supernatural thing. To truly agape love someone. To look at someone and say, I believe and want and desire the absolute best for you regardless of who you are and what you've done. That's a supernatural event. So when we, when we whether it's the, the uh, sinfulness of sin or whether it's the, the actual tender compassion and care for another human being, when we lack those things, and there can be other reasons, but when we lack those things, really the response isn't to try to now feel those things on our own, but is in fact to cry out and ask for the filling of God's Holy Spirit, ask Him to give us a love for people, ask Him to open our eyes to what people are going through, ask Him to show us. And in that supernatural revelation of who he is and who and what these things are on these earth and, and what he believes and, and how much he loves his creation, we then can move forward in ways that are effectual or helpful in the kingdom of God. 
So it's not about us mustering up something. It's not about us knowing everything. It's not about us uh, having all the answers. It's about us asking God and then letting him come forward with truth and changing us. And then we're able to bring that. Secondly, and lastly, it says in verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And just, just kind of a, as a closing idea here, he was available. He had two venues. The Areopagus came later. But in the moment, he had two venues. He went to the synagogue and he went to the market and he talked to whoever happened to be there. Beggars can't be choosers, I guess. So for you and I, it's been wisely said by many people that the best ability is availability. And that's just the, it's the God's honest truth. We can worry all sorts about, I don't know what my gift is, and I don't, you know, I don't know this, and whatever. I'm, I'm not mocking any of those things. But we can, we can go through all sorts of turmoil. Meanwhile, there's possibilities all around us. We go, oh, that's not me, or that's not me. I mean, we have to be careful with that, just kind of dismissing possibilities. Because you got to love, he goes to the synagogue, and then he just goes to the market, and just whatever's there. Well, there's Bob again, buying turnips. Let me tell you about the risen Jesus. You know, whatever it might be, however it happened. And so for us, I just encourage you, if you find a lack of care for people in your heart, number one, be honest about it. Be honest about it. Or if you feel in your heart when you see sin, it's just raw, like a fence, like, ah, ah. Repent of that. It's fine to have righteous indignation, but the righteous indignation is, I hate this sin that is destroying the people that God loves. That's the righteous indignation. And if you decide, if, if you're thinking like, I want to have that heart and I want to move forward, then again, Here's the third prayer. Lord, where can I contribute? Where's my marketplace? Who are the people that happen to be there in my marketplace? I always want to be really careful because my goal is never to just solicit activity without inner reality because I've lived that life and it's a pretty crummy life. It ends in anger and frustration and feeling like a slave. It really does. But at the same time, like Peter says, those of us in whom the last, uh, the last days have fallen upon, it is for us to be involved in God's kingdom. That is why we are here. It is for us to be involved in what God has for us, whatever that might be. Your ministry might be different than mine, whatever. We're not here to, to, to say what you should do in that sense because only you have the ministry God has given you and it's not for me to decide what it is. It's for you to decide. But it's for you to walk in. And as, as cliche, Christian cliche as it is, we do. We absolutely live in a dying world where every single person who doesn't know Christ is going to go to hell forever. That they will forever live in regret where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth over their own rebellion. And to kind of dismiss it if we do as some sort of, well, they deserve it because I deserved it, but I received Jesus, so... They should too. That's not the attitude we can have. We're called to be involved in this kingdom. So number one, the heart. If in your heart you reject the idea of being involved with God's kingdom, I encourage you to repent 
and ask for the love of Christ to be shed abroad in your heart through his Holy Spirit. Number two, what is your marketplace? You don't have to know it. You can pray, Lord, what is my marketplace? What's the ministry you have for me? Where can I contribute? Where can I be part of your kingdom? He says, he tells us straight up that being involved with his kingdom is the most satisfying life that we can have. So if we don't believe that, there's a third prayer request. Lord, I don't think your kingdom's that exciting. And frankly, I think your ministry's boring. Can you help me understand where I'm off? Help me to understand why it's worth personal degradation or sacrifice to see your kingdom go forward. And as we move forward in honesty, and in, in, in a sense, request and provoking God, in a sense, then we're going to begin to live a more and more fulfilling and miraculous life, and we're going to build his kingdom. Amen. And this, it, it'll be, like, just good for everyone. <laughs> there's no, really no downside to that. There's no, like, but, you know, there's, it's only upsides. So I encourage you, God has great things for you. Lastly here, we'll have the communion. But in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul um, received instructions and he passes them on to us through a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. He says here, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. This was an issue that they were having. Because when you come together, it's not for the, uh, for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, uh, well, you know, we don't have time. We'll skip all that. Verse 23. <laughs> it says, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And they were having issues. They, were, they used to partake, the, old, the early church, as we understand from history, essentially it wasn't necessarily part of the church service like we do it with the communion. It would be more like they called them love feasts. And it was the idea of what we call potlucks. And that essentially the church would get together after a service or any day during the week, they would have a potluck together. And then part of that potluck would be to have the Lord's Supper. Okay, So that's, it was a different time. What was happening is that People were essentially were inviting other people to the potluck, and if they then they would just kind of eat all their food, and they wouldn't share their food. So you have kind of these people over here that were rich and had food, and they would just eat it all, and then other people got shamed because of that. And then on top of that, people were drinking a bunch of wine at the fellowship, and then they'd be drunk when it's time to get to the Lord's Supper. So a tad dysfunctional. So in this, the idea, he says, I want you to remember he didn't say, I want you to remember how you wronged me. I want you to remember how you do everything poorly. He says, I want you to remember two things. Number one, he says, when you eat the bread, he says, I want you to remember that my body was given for you. That's not a sacrament of guilt or shame. It's a sacrament of joy. He says, I want you to remember, Jesus says, that I gave my body for you. That's, a, that's, a, that's joy. And then he says, and I want you to remember when you drink this wine, we have grape juice, when you drink this wine and you drink from this cup that you remember that my blood has a new covenant. Now for us, we're like, ah, we didn't have the old covenant. But for them, it was a big deal. No longer the blood of bulls and goats and sacrifices at the temple. 
But the idea that now there's a new covenant that Christ came as the Messiah and paid for sin for all time. He says, I want you to remember when you drink that cup that I made a new covenant with you. And it's not the old, it's new and it's in my blood. So the time of communion, it's a time where we get to, to eat and drink and, and, and remember that Christ paid and that he loves us and we have a new covenant. And there is a warning, and the warning is to not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. And the idea behind the unworthy manner was in despising it. Not to despise, in other words, not to drink of it like in a, in a hypocritical way of just pretending or just like putting on a face for it or something like that. To, be, to, to partake worthily, honestly, or literally worthily, giving it the worth it deserves. So it's, not a, it's not a somber time. It's not a sad time. There might be some sobriety as we consider our own lives and as how we're living according to the gospel, but it's a time of joy and peace to, to rejoice in what he did for us. So we're going to have some communion and a couple of songs, and then we'll be on our way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the bread and for the cup. Lord, that remind us of who you are. Lord, thank you for your word and your promises. Thank you that you're building your kingdom. We get to be part of that. Thank you that you're saving people. We get to be part of that. Thank you that you saved us. Lord, we thank you for the blood of the covenant. Lord, for the, the grace and the kindness. Lord, for the forgiveness and the cleansing. Lord, we thank you for your purpose, that you're building your house, and we really want to be part of that. Lord, I pray that you'd wake us up. Help us to understand the, what's going on in this world and just the great things that you have for us and for people that you want to get your gospel to. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would be a bright and shining light for our community and we'd be um, just a blessing to you and to others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.